A perfect day to talk about plants because it's a day that ends in Y. We absolutely love it, and I think we got two of the best to talk about it right now as I'm going to hand over the reins of the Glenn Merzer podcast to author, playwright, screenwriter, and stand-up comedian, all-around good guy, Glenn Merzer, who is uh, serendipitously the host of the Glenn Merzer podcast. Welcome, Glenn. Thank you, Rich. And we've got a very special show today. I am honored honored to have as our special guest my friend Klaus Mitchell. Uh, Klaus has a degree in human biosciences from the University of Exeter and a master's in uh, the genetics of human disease from University College in London. But he is most known for starting plant-based news, which I think, Klaus, makes you a vegan media mogul would you would you say that you're a vegan media mogul do you feel like a vegan media mogul i'm I'm starting to feel it based on that introduction i've never felt it before (laughs) i appreciate the kind of well you i i believe you have something like 2.8 million followers on social media is that right exactly and then across the website as well it adds up and uh yeah, it's quite quite a quite a monthly yeah. reach. I think it's uh, eighty million impressions uh, each month. But yes, yeah, two point eight million followers. Wow! And your journey to becoming a vegan and starting this—it's not. It didn't take that much time. When did you become a vegan? Yeah, it's a, a really interesting question. Um, and the true answer is, I can't actually remember exactly when. It wasn't an overnight thing. Uh, a lot of people that you know, go towards the plant-based lifestyle, the vegan lifestyle now kind of have like a a definitive date where they remember specifically going vegan. Um, But I kind of went vegan slowly. I think back in the day, there wasn't the resources available. And I'm sure we can talk about that um, a little bit later, but it was around 2010 when I read the the China study. Um, I was actually uh, on the way to doing a bike tour in South America. And the only book I had uh, was the China study, and I was just so entranced and inspired by the message in that in that book. Um, it was one of the most inspiring projects I've ever read. So I kept rereading and rereading it. And what's interesting about it is after that, I still consumed animal protein, animal products uh, occasionally, which is kind of bizarre because I was on the one hand so passionate about the message uh, of Tikon Campbell and whole food plant based, but then. I would still think that I would need, you know, just one egg, just a week, just just to be sure that I get enough protein. And it's kind of paradoxical in a way that you can be so passionate about a message, but still have that latent brainwashing. Well, I, w- I want to say this, that it's to me, it's really uh, it's really kind of inspiring that you became a vegan because you read a book as an author that. That's like the best answer I can hear, almost the best answer. I'll give you nine (laughs) points for it. It, it, If it had been one of my books, I'd give you 10 points, but it wasn't one of my books. I mean, you're holding up, Rich, your health book, but the one that I've read time and again is the the response to Al Gore, the environmental... uh, Food is climate. That is is the name of it, exactly. I've read that many times. So yeah, massive shout out to that. Anybody listening that is interested in understanding the debate around how much animal agriculture contributes to 
climate change, specifically greenhouse gas emissions, because you hear that 14.5% figure over and over again, but you really go that step further and, and talk about how, you know, that's the minimum kind of uh, estimate, isn't it? Well, the 14.5 figure uh, is kind of a joke. It's from the uh, FAO, the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization. And just a few years earlier, they had said 18%. And then they got a lot of flack from animal agriculture interests within their own organization. And they said, oh, we calculated wrong. It's 14.5%. Now, if you start adding up all the things they didn't calculate, like, for example, what would happen to the land if we didn't have animal agriculture and the forest came back, what we call carbon opportunity cost. So if you factor that in, if you factor in animal respiration, these animals are exhaling carbon dioxide every moment. Um, they don't count that because they say that's part of the natural carbon cycle, that animals exhale carbon dioxide and trees drink it in which in a sense is true, except if you have less and less trees. I mean, imagine if we had 10 trillion animals in one tree, would it still be the natural carbon cycle? So it's not a natural cycle. It matters how many farmed animals we have. So if, they fa if you factor in animal respiration, you factor in carbon opportunity cost, you factor in what industrial fishing is doing to the oceans, and if you account for methane realistically and not using some fake accounting gimmicks, it's not 14.5%. It's not 18%. Uh, I go by Dr. Silish's, Silish Rao's figure. It's at least 87%. And even Silish will tell you he can't factor in things like, for example, in grazing, they burn every year. They have what they call pasture maintenance fires. We don't know how much carbon dioxide goes into the atmosphere from that. We don't know how much goes in from bottom trawling of the oceans. So it may well be over 90%, which leads to my next question. Klaus, in my opinion, having studied climate a lot now, having spoken to scientists, uh, having read a lot about it, I've come to the conclusion that the scientists don't know much better than the rest of us uh, how, how dire the crisis is. So let me ask you, how much time do you think we have left if we keep going the way we're going? When you say left, what do you mean? To, to how much time do you think if we keep, if society keeps going on roughly the way it's been going uh, with animal agriculture, with the uh, burning of fossil fuels, um, how much time before it just doesn't become livable, where we have uh, extraordinary crises and mass migrations and extreme poverty and hunger and the world isn't recognizable? I mean, I don't think anybody knows how much longer it will be until we actually start uh, dying. I mean, there are some predictions about uh, food insecurity. Um, the, the the prediction or the the statement that really sticks with me is uh, Sir David King, who is the chief scientific advisor to the UK government, uh, I think in the 90s and 2000s. Uh, he said uh, about six months ago or nine months ago, um, what we do in the next couple of years will determine the future of humanity. 
And I think that's the the really important time frame, like the amount of time it'll be until we can, you know, reverse the trajectory and the, the projections so that we avoid the worst effects of climate change. Um, if we miss that opportunity, frankly, I don't know how long it will be, but I know that the next two to eight years, what we do and what we decide not to do will probably determine the, the future of humanity, in my opinion. What do you reckon? I agree. And I think what we do in terms of animal agriculture will matter more than anything else. It will matter more than, you know, to what extent we uh, have clean energy versus the burning of fossil fuels. Um, and then the question is, do you see any progress in terms of transforming to a vegan or more vegan world? I see a big tragedy because um, what we have is a situation where uh, the current system, the capitalist system, is heading in a, in a kind of direction where I don't think we will systematically exploit uh, billions of animals each year and we won't continuously breed into existence tens of billions of animals each year in the next 40 or 50 years. I mean, according to The Economist magazine, 60% of the meat market will be made up of you know, animal-free products by 2040. That means only 40% will be conventional slaughter-based meat. And there's some even more promising data and projections from a group called Rethink X, which say that um, in sort of like 10 years, the dairy industry could be disrupted or transformed uh, in the US. And the real tragedy is that like in the same way transportation industry said goodbye to the horses and, and invented the engine. And in the same way, the energy sector said goodbye to, uh, you know, whale oil and, and then moved to kerosene. We're seeing a kind of similar trajectory, except it's not going to happen quickly enough. This innovation is happening. The money's going into it. It's just the real tragedy is like, it's not going to happen quick enough. You know, I said that the, the quote from the chief scientific advisor to UK government, I think other people echo that. And so we have to ask ourselves, what can we do right now, three times a day so that we're not waiting for a government? So we're not waiting for food technology, which a bit weird anyway, let's be honest, just as you say, just eat natural food. That's kind of like the call to action, I think, because we don't have the luxury of time. So I guess, and I've kind of been talking quite a lot, but even though I'm optimistic about the inevitability of these technologies, whether it's you know, whatever it is, like plant-based products, um, cultivated meat, precision fermented dairy, uh, I don't think they will deliver the pace of change that we need. So, so these products that you hold out some hope for, um, uh, like cell meat, and uh, we have a disagreement on cell meat that we could explore later, but these products that you hold out hope for, they're, they're not here now. But what is here now is beans and rice and vegetables and fruits and all kinds of legumes and mushrooms and so forth. So the question is, since what we have now is perfectly good enough in terms of the human diet, can we get people to see the light? Is there any progress on getting people to see the light? It's a really challenging one, isn't it? Because there's a narrative in the advocacy 
uh, environmental health vegan community whatever you want to call it that if you educate people and they become aware of something then they will change their behavior and they'll change their actions and they will understand the health ramifications the environmental effects um, the fact it was 40 degrees in london and the link to climate change in animal agriculture um and animal rights issues and the horrors of factory farming and then make the transition after they learn about that and understand that and that's certainly true for a lot of people probably some of us here today um, but unfortunately the social pressures are such and human nature is such that we just go along with whatever we're used to you know i think there's that that saying in your your speech that the problem is it's just culture at the moment animal products are ubiquitous it's not that everybody's corrupt it's not that people want to do the wrong thing people want to do the right thing and inherently you've got that inner compassion that that leads us down that compassionate direction but as you say it's just a culture that is toxic where animal products are everywhere they're in everything we're not just talking about food we're talking about you know in tarmac and tennis balls and fashion and cosmetics and again the, just to come back to like the core point it's like the real tragedy is that animals as a mode of production are going to be phased out but again like is that is that happening quickly enough and so i completely subscribe to your idea like why not go for the food that's available right now and it's also better for, for public health issues such as antibiotic resistance and pandemic risk and it's better for personal health and it's immediately better um you know for the animals and the environment and the list goes on and so let's just do that and it's a very frustrating thing that i think unfortunately in a kind of weird way behavior will have to change first and then maybe just maybe people think oh putting 70 billion animals through factory farming every year probably wasn't that good and then they have the ethical realization if that makes sense yeah um i've had a, a discussion sometimes with a good friend of mine <clears throat> whose name is arlo vegan he wasn't born with that name but he took that name um he was born arlo carnivore <laughs> i think uh, but anyway, Arlo says that when people become vegan for moral reasons, because of the treatment of animals, because it's so cruel, uh, they then are committed and they're less likely to switch back. Um, and uh, I'm not sure if he's right. You know, I initially became a vegan for health reasons. And I haven't switched back. Uh, do you have a, a sense about that? That Because we do hear about vegans who go vegan and then go back, and I can't understand why. Uh, but do you have a, a, a sense about whether if you come at veganism from one perspective or another, from either concern for the animals, concern for the environment and the climate, or concern for health, you're more likely to stick and bring other vegans with you? I think the data says uh, the environmental reasons are the things that lead people into the plant-based lifestyle. And then obviously understanding what happens to the animals leads people into, you know, veganism as an ethical um, lifestyle. But I think of it as kind of like two groups, like the conscious consumer and the unconscious consumer. The conscious consumer is growing certainly in, in the West, um, in developed places in North America, in the UK, in Europe, and Australasia. So more people becoming flexitarian. I think there was a poll in January this year that said 33% of the UK were interested in becoming uh, vegan or plant-based. 
And that's obviously grown a massive amount, you know, in the last kind of like five, 10, 15 years. Uh, but, you know, where we want, what we want to tackle, the cohort, the group that we really, really want to address and, and, and convert, if you like, without it sounding like a religion, is the, the unconscious consumer, the people that are just thinking about and relying on their next paycheck, the people that um, they, they, they just want that little bit of pleasure three times a day, that little bit of respite, that, that sensory pleasure, right? These people, it's not going to make a difference how much you tell them it's better for animals and public health issues and their health. They, they're, they're just, they're thinking about the next paycheck. They don't have the bandwidth to think about what's healthy for them or healthy for the environment. And so that is where I think we can see kind of mass change. And that's where I think I've become interested in the last year or two. Whereas before that it was, I was mainly catering. I mean, I didn't even mean to, you know, no pun intended, but I was kind of, kind of like catering to the conscious consumer, the people that wanted to transform their health. I kind of realized that if we need mass change, we need to, have a message that fits in with those conscious consumers, but also the unconscious consumers, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think one of the factors is, is if you come to veganism just out of a concern for the animals, uh, then you may not eat a healthy vegan diet. You may be eating the vegan junk foods, the vegan donuts. And then you may find, oh, I tried to be vegan, but it, um, I'm having health problems. I guess I needed the protein or, or something. Um, whereas if you come at it from health and you eat a low-fat, whole foods, vegan diet and you get healthier, um, you're, you're going to stay with it. Now, now Rich came to, came to this because as a young man, he started getting... Um, uh, mini strokes. Rich, tell, tell Klaus the story. And I know you're not no, going there, back. There's no way right? that I go back. And uh, I actually, I had my first one when I was 28 years old and I was on the radio and the owner of the radio station comes in. I was doing a morning show on a Thursday morning and he comes into the studio at 645 and he was upset with me. And he goes, uh, Rich, are you drunk? And I'm like, no, I'm not drunk at 6.45 in the morning on a Thursday. I mean, you know, technically, I guess I could have been getting plowed, you know, on Wednesday night or something like that and, you know, sauced up pretty good. But I'm like, no, I, I don't really drink that much anyways. And he goes, well, you're slurring your words. And I'm like, oh, really? And at 28, I really just thought like, oh, my goodness, you know, I'm probably just tired or something like that. As it turns out. Um, after this happened to me a few more times over the, the years, um, they were TIAs and, and many strokes that I started to accumulate and went on all kinds of medicines for, um, you know, and that's, that, that's my story. And I eventually got to the plant-based diet because nothing else was working. The medicines weren't working. Anything else wasn't working. The doctors didn't have a solution for me, but like I was talking to Glenn, uh, before we, we went on the, well, I guess it's not on the air here before we started re recording. I, I kind of oscillate sometimes like a fan and I know when I'm on a whole food plant-based diet, I feel one way. I feel healthy and lean and I feel great and my body responds well. And then sometimes like I've been doing lately, I'll go back the other way and I'm on the vegan junk food diet. Um, you know, and then all of a sudden I'm gaining weight. I don't feel as good. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm back to kind of that unhealthy place, nowhere near as bad as it was. Um, but it's still, not so good. But my argument always has been, Glenn, if we're talking about environmental issues, I'm okay with junk food vegans. 
um, because that's still going to save the planet. So I'm I'm okay with that. I don't have as mm-hmm. you know the I, I guess as much desire to say, well, you have to do it for your own health. I think people get there on their own. I think people do have to say finally, okay, I want to be healthy for whatever motivating factor that is, um, whether it's you know for themselves, for their family, for their kids, whatever the the heck that it turns out to be. Um, so I guess. You know, and, and Klaus, and just listening to you guys, and I, I like Glenn run all of these things because I could prattle on for hours and hours just talking to myself. Um, when we're talking about about plant based news and and what you're doing and what what you guys are talking about, I mean, your your message is disrupting the conventional narrative, um, which I think is is really hard to do because you you guys are talking about okay, how do we get it to people? How do we get them to change? Or how do we get them to to see the light? How do we you know get get that messaging out there? Your thoughts on on getting the messaging out there, because I I definitely think you're hitting plant based people like me, okay? And and you talked about you know maybe also being able to appeal to non plant based people. How do you disrupt the conventional narrative? Because the conventional narrative I don't think is changing anytime soon. They're pretty dug in on their messaging. So when you're disrupting the conventional narrative, what does that mean for you on a daily basis? I guess yeah, it just reflects the 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 messaging that we hear in the health, environmental, ethical communities, and the health communities that you know moderation is everything, and you know lean cuts of meat are healthy, and we're saying actually no, like a predominantly plant based diet or an exclusively plant based diet is optimal for health, and it's unfortunate that that is um, bucking the trend and that's disrupting the conventional narrative because it seems like such an obvious thing to us but it's the same with the environmental argument and the ethical argument free range doesn't really mean much um regenerative meat is a spurious claim and it's it's bucking that trend is saying like those solutions they're not ethical they're not realistic they're not scalable um and so there yeah, the content can take a variety of different forms it can be long-form interviews like what we're doing it can be short uh, reels. I've been on the streets in central London, just literally going up to people and saying, Hey, do you have an opinion about something? And then them coming back and then getting into a debate. It can be doing campaigns, advertising campaigns for companies or just awareness campaigns. It can, it can be lots of different things, but I just want to explain one anecdote because this shows how hard it is sometimes even for a vegan news publishing platform to go up against a conventional narrative. And it relates to the greenhouse gas emissions, uh, FAO figure that Glenn often talks about when we published the article stating that, you know, Salish Rao came out in the journal of ecological society saying that animal agriculture is responsible for 87% of greenhouse gas emissions, or at least 87% of greenhouse gas emissions. We were actually, um, we written to somebody reached out to us, uh, an organization that tackles online misinformation. I don't want to mention their name, but they actually emailed us to say, Hey, you haven't referred to the FAO's 14.5% figure. What is, what is going on? And they felt like we were lacking credibility. They, they didn't like it. And, you know, I was thinking like, we're simply reporting on a peer reviewed study, right? But the worst part about it is I gave into their request to give credence to the FAO's 14.5% figure. And isn't it really telling that, you know, if a vegan news publication, a, a vegan media company, plays down the impact of animal agriculture, then of course, there's no surprise that a government, you know, a governments around the world don't promote uh, plant-based food. Of course, there's no surprise that events such as COP26 are never mentioned transitioning away from animal agriculture. Yeah. 
and so yeah even for us like the point i just want to come back to is like sometimes really hard to go against the conventional narrative and i've seen that many times firsthand uh could i ask you this the the person who emailed you or organization that emailed you did they have any regulatory authority was it sort of a, a veiled threat well i copied in Salish rao and then what followed was several emails between them going back and forth um and Salish was making comments uh, dr rao was making comments like you know the fao number actually used to be higher but then the meat industry or, uh, you know, so the FAO, the United Nations actually partnered with the International Meat Secretariat and the International Dairy Federation, talked about the LEAP partnership. Um, but then this organization came back and I've got the emails um, saying that we're, you know, we're cherry picking the data and that just because it's funded by the meat industry, it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, that's not in and of itself explaining why the 14.5% data is, is wrong. Um, and so you had those kind of conversations going back and forth. I think another point they made was the fact that the 87% study by Dr. Salish Rao wasn't referenced um, by reputable journals. And again, it comes back to that point that you always make clear that as part of our culture, animal products and animal agriculture. So of course, it's no surprise that journals still reference the FAO figure because that's what everyone does. The Guardian have written thousands of articles where they're referring to that number. Um, lots of medical groups and environmental mm -hmm. groups do. So who on earth is going to start saying 87%, you know, because they're going to see his name and they're going to think, oh, he thinks the world is going to go vegan in 10 years. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to give him any uh, credence or credibility. So, um, yeah, that was kind of like the nature of it. But I, th I thought it was very telling, the fact that even we felt the need to play down the impact of animal agriculture. And frankly, that was just because we wanted to protect a hundred percent credibility rating. Aha. So they had, they had some sway over your credibility rating within the, yeah, media. you kind of like right? have to play the game, right? You have to go along with the, the BS. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, that, uh, so that's what yeah, you're up against. Got, got this credibility rating. It's good at the moment. Got that little tick. Like I, you know, I'm just too busy. I don't, don't want to, I don't want to write essays back and forth. Got lots going on. Just, you know, pick your battles kind of right. thing. So then we included the, the FAO's 14.5% figure. Okay. Well, hopefully uh, many people will be uh, watching and listening to this podcast and that'll <laughs> be corrected. Now tell me about your own diet, Klaus. Do you, are you simply a vegan or do you try to eat a whole food uh, diet without oil and a, a really healthy, uh, low fat vegan I diet. To, yeah. Was I, I just had dinner cause it's UK. So it's evening time now I had, I really, yeah, I don't feel actually very good. I didn't have the healthiest dinner. I think I had pasta, uh, tofu, sweet corn, tomatoes, and lots of salt. And then for pudding, I had a uh -huh. hot chocolate and then I had some more chocolate on its own. So Kind of trying to be, it's trying to be the low fat, it's trying to be relatively whole food, mm -hmm. starch based, but then just, you know, letting the team down for right. dessert. <laughs> well, we could let the dessert slide. At least it was dark chocolate. Not quite, but I'll, I'll, I'll go with that, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what, what 
what would you say are the staples of your diet? Um, so I'm trying to do this two meal a day thing now so that I'm not constantly thinking about food. Yeah, oh, so I really? wake up, I don't have food immediately. I have my first meal around 11.30. I normally have a smoothie um, with protein powder in, not because not I think I need it, just purely for taste, which definitely isn't whole food. But then I guess there's some spinach and bananas in there. Um, and then I might have a coffee. And then, you know what I'm saying? Like that, there's elements of health. There's, there's elements of pattern of eating right. that is trying to keep the fat low um, and is trying to have fruit, trying to have uh -huh. vegetables. But ultimately, yeah, it's, it's I'd say 60 to 90% um, predominantly whole food plant-based and then the other 10 to 30% is kind of processed. Yeah. So how much coffee do you drink? Uh, normally like a, a cup glass a day, normally. One, one cup, but one cup is crazy. It's the crazy thing okay, at the that's... moment, right? Like it's, it makes no sense to have all this sugar and the caffeine and it's just, the, it's, it's trending. Well, do you, do you put sometimes, sugar in it? Yeah. Sometimes not. No, I don't do that. <laughs> no, I'm against yeah. the sugar. What do you think of Dr. John McDougall yeah. saying a little bit of sugar makes the medicine go down? <laughs> yeah. Um, Okay, I'm going to tell you, since you ask, I'm going to tell you what I think. I, I admire and respect Dr. John McDougall to the highest degree. He's one of the founders of this movement. And he is, uh, you know, he's really an icon of the plant-based movement. All the same, I think I'm allowed to have a disagreement with him. So um, here's my disagreement with him. He's been known to say, uh, it's okay to put a little sugar in your oatmeal so that you'll eat the oatmeal, you know, because I want you to eat the oatmeal. And if you're not going to eat the oatmeal without the sugar, put the sugar in the oatmeal. I would say, don't put sugar in your oatmeal. It's breakfast. It's not dessert. You know, why in the world would you want to take a healthy meal and make it unhealthy? So don't put sugar in your oatmeal. And in fact, you got to learn to appreciate the oatmeal without the sugar. Now you can put Blueberries, strawberries, pears, apples, bananas, any whole fruit in there, and that'll sweeten it up if you need it sweetened up. But don't make this bad mistake of putting a, what's really a highly addictive food um, in, in your oatmeal and turn a healthy meal into a not-so-healthy meal. Um, and, you know, people need to appreciate that one of the reasons for eating is nutrition, to be healthy. It isn't only taste. And if you take the attitude that one of the reasons I'm eating is because I want to live long and be there for my family and be healthy and not go to doctors, then you won't want that sickeningly sweet taste added to your oatmeal. You'll want that, that uh, you know, that feeling of um, the meal being being uh, unimpeachable, you know, it's it's healthy, pure, plain uh, food that when that's was good for you. Had a junk meal and <laughs> a junk meal. Well, you know, my wife sometimes bakes cookies, and you know they'll have nuts in them, and uh, you know maybe a little bit of some kind of sweetener, uh, like dates or something. And, um, you know, I'll have a cookie once in a while, but 
it's for dessert. It's not for breakfast. It's not, you're not starting off the day with that. Now, I don't drink coffee, but I did have one cup of coffee in my life. One cup of coffee. Uh, I was 17 years old. Uh, I, when I grew up, I never drank coffee. I don't know, kids, I had milk and cookies. You know, I was a kid. I, I never thought of drinking coffee. Um, and then I went to visit the college that I was going to attend called New College in Sarasota, Florida. And let's hope it doesn't get hit by a hurricane in the next few days. Um, and um, I went there, you know, to, to meet the students, to meet the professors. And there was a coffee clatch at the home of a woman named Professor Bates. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll go there and meet some professors and students, and that should be fun. So I went there, and in the middle of the coffee clatch, Dr. Bates calls out, Glenn, do you drink coffee? And everybody kind of turns to me, and I said, I don't know. So she said, uh, would you like to try a cup? And I'm thinking, now I'm going to be a grown-up. I'm going to college. I'm 17 years old. So I said, sure, I'd love to try a cup. She gives me a cup of coffee. And it was like drinking mud. It was, the, the, it was just unbelievably undrinkable. It was horrible. So I had a few sips at most, and I stopped. And I never drank coffee again. I went to that college. I loved it there. About 15 years later, my literature professor retired. So I flew back to Sarasota to speak at his retirement. And... Um, when I was there, I met a young student from China, and I asked her what she was studying, and she said, international relations with Dr. Bates. And I said, oh, is Dr. Bates still here? How's she doing? And she says, great, she is the most fantastic professor, but she makes the worst <laughs> friggin' coffee. So, but I feel that kind of Dr. Bates did me a favor because I never drank coffee ever since then. Um. So you're a reasonably healthy vegan. I mean, eating a reasonably healthy diet, having some sweets <laughs> now and again. Uh, and uh, do, you, do, you go, do you go to the restaurants, the vegan restaurants in London? And how is that seen? Is it, is it burgeoning? Yeah, it's not, it's not cottage industry anymore. It's pretty burgeoning. That's, that's, a, good, that's a good word, probably pretty accurate. Um, doing this two meal a day thing, and just like consciously eating, even if I'm in a restaurant, just like consciously going for that, that noodle soup or whatever it is, um, is definitely where it's at. But yeah, it's, I think I remember waking up uh, three, four days ago and just having like a few breakouts on my skin and thinking, yeah, been out, been out um, eating vegan food in restaurants the last couple of days and it's clearly taking its toll. So I try and stay in and just, yeah, mm -hmm. whole food plant-based. Okay. Um, and how about your loved ones? Have you convinced people in your family, your close friends to go vegan or do even they My resist? My wife has been vegetarian her whole life and she's been vegan the last couple of years. Uh, her family okay. are Jane, which is pretty, pretty vegan. I missed those uh, last her words there. Her, fa um, her family? So they believe in Ahimsa, non-violence, all sentient beings minimalism and things like that so naturally they're pretty pretty vegan mm -hmm. um my parents 
uh, a vegan and my siblings aren't. Um, but everybody supports what I do, um, especially my parents. I'm really proud of them for for ditching, you know, dairy and meat and and the health is feeling better for it. And they're they're very passionate about the cause, so I'm very very grateful for that. Okay, and so your siblings who aren't vegan, how much debate has there been between you and them? I try not to get into a debate just because, yeah, that is such a personal thing. And then it's like the vegan, you know, the vegans already have the reputation for being puritanical and preachy. And it's like, just take a step back from that and like lead by, lead by example. Um, I guess it's a shame when family like come to events, the end of year films that I do, and then they're, you know, clapping and sharing and saying it's amazing. And then they're like eating animal products, um, you know, the next week. I actually had a story where one of my family members watched Cowspiracy with me and then the next meal was bacon and eggs. And it's just like, just, just kind of like disappointing. You know, just, I don't know, that feeling of just like, come on, wake up. Like you're, in, you're loving the documentary, it's a good production, the message, you can't really refute it. And then you're having that kind of thing after. And it's just, yeah, a little bit disappointing. Uh-huh. Um, and for our listeners who may not know what Klaus is referring to here with the documentaries is every year... Uh, plant-based news comes up with a documentary and I believe Klaus that you direct them. Do you, do you not? Uh, that's like vegan year, 2019, vegan year, 2020, vegan year, 2021. And you, you show what's going on in the movement year yeah, by year. Um, so I'm working on, right? the, I'm working on vegan 2022 at the moment. Um, which uh -huh. is, uh, I mean, I've done it so, so many years. I mean, I started in 2015 and last year was a bit of a washout. It was only six minutes. So it wasn't really a film. Um, but, but before that, you know, they're all feature length and it's just, it's, it's tiring. You know, you speak to documentary makers and they're like, I've been working on the documentary for five, six years. And I know I'm not shooting a lot of the content originally myself. So I'm not trying to compare the, the, the pet, you know, vegan projects I do every year to, you know, like a Netflix original or anything, but yeah, it takes, takes people a long time. And I just, yeah, I guess I'm trying to knock out, you know, feature lengths in two, three months. It's like a real challenge. So I think for me, in terms of my yeah. personal health, the stress and the, the, the disrupted sleep probably has more of an impact than me eating processed food occasionally. Uh -huh. Um, and these annual vegan documentaries that you make obviously they play on your channel on the youtube channel of plant-based news do they play anywhere yeah, else in 2019 is uh it's london cinema uh la and then beijing as well so um we kind of got that international appeal and it's kind of nice like putting it in a cinema in london and then having vegan 2022 on the billboard for like 48 hours um That's but it's nice. high pressure i remember i remember in 2018 um, cause what you have to export the file in a certain way for the cinema. And there's some specificities about how you do that. I remember just being up super late the day before in 2018, making sure that the file was correct. But the thing is it takes nine hours to export. So I was thinking as I went to bed, if something goes wrong and I wake up and it's like, oh, it hasn't exported correct. Then it's mathematically nearly impossible to get the documentary ready 
for the cinema and I had like 300 tickets sold. So yeah, I basically just didn't sleep huh. and then had to get up on stage and, you know, welcome everyone and do a little talk. And then he had a Q and A after with, you know, Ali Tabrizi, who's doing a uh, sea spiracy and Earthling Ed was there and some of these luminaries. And I was just like, so tired, but, uh, the video played and people clapped. So I guess it was, it was good enough. <laughs> so you got yeah, it done exactly. in time. Well, do you have some help putting these things together? It's not all your burden, is help, it? But I mean, you know, it's like writing a book, you know, you can get all the help you want, but it's like, it's your thing. It's your name by it. It's your responsibility. It's your, I mean, yeah. you know, you must be able to relate in terms of the books that you've written, like the pressure and the, you know, you can't just hand that over to somebody yeah. quickly and easily. Right. Right. So, so you're doing vegan year 2022 Absolutely. now, right? Yes. Working on it yeah. now. And do you think you'll think you, when is the deadline? December? The earlier you get it out, the better. So I'm hoping for an early December launch, but the luxury of it is if you need to no. push it back to kind of like mid December, then it's not too bad. Um, but yeah, just honestly, with all this stuff that I'm trying to do alongside that with plant beast news, just like, I just wish I was just working on that, you know, so getting distracted, but yeah, also cause I've done it for so many years. It's like, how do you continue to motivate yourself when you're doing the same thing over and over again? I mean, some of the people that inspire me the most are people like George Monbiot, environmental journalists who have basically been authors right. and writers for decades and yet they're still doing. And I think as a society professionally, we used to going into a job. And then within two, three years, you move around, right? So you start off as a, uh, I don't know, like a camera person, then you become a director and then you become a manager and then you become a consultant and then you become a, but actually like what, how good would he get if you just stayed doing the same thing? And on the one hand, that's quite inspiring because like if you just do the same thing over and over again, you get really, really good at something. On the other hand, this gets really boring quickly. So I'm just like debating that in my head, like, do I keep doing these documentaries you know because it's e in a way it's easier and easier every year i can do it quicker and quicker but then it's kind of less exciting it becomes like a tick box do this do this do this it's like very boring if mm -hmm. that makes sense so that's kind of like the debate i'm having so i don't know if you could give us this preview but what in your mind has been the biggest vegan event outside of this interview <laughs> of 2022 um, like I'd say the alternative protein company is raising a ton of money, like $400 million pre-revenue. So we're talking about companies that not even sold a product that are years away from selling a product, raising an absolute ton of money. And I think that speaks volumes about where we're at as a society, that this industry whether we like it or not, is going to be disrupted. And the vegans saying they should do it yep. a certain way in this way, they're, they're like, we're kind of irrelevant in the grand scheme of things. It's bigger than, it's not just vegans now. This is politicians, governments, and business leaders indicating it's not just a trend, but transformation globally in our food system. So is this the cell-based meat industry that's raising yeah, all this money? In California that raised a heap of money, also precision fermented 
precision fermentation, uh, cellular fermentation based companies are generating. Tell us about pre- precision fermentation. What, yeah, what do they to make? Get your take on it, actually, because um, I think your main criticism of cultured meat is not just that it perpetuates the idea that you need to eat meat, which is, of course, untrue, but also that it requires cells from an animal. But the thing of uh, precision fermented dairy is you don't need, you know, you don't need animal cells. So you basically use uh, microorganisms in the same way you create beer in a brewery through a process of fermentation, you instruct certain microbes to produce certain proteins. And it's been pretty clear that we're able to produce exact proteins found in animal milk and cheese. Um, and actually in over 90% of dairy cheeses, there's a product called rennet. Rennet is uh, non-animal rennet. So if you look at the back of a packet of cheese, it says non-animal rennet in 90% of dairy cheeses. That is rennet that's actually not from an animal. Back in the day, 50 years ago, it used to be from the intestines of a baby calf. So you can imagine the the horror of you know trying to get that product um, in the food industry. And nobody judges that, right? Nobody's like, oh my God, that's crazy. It's non-animal rennet. I think we're just going to see the exact same thing scaled up so the entire process of producing dairy is going to be identical in terms of taste and texture and that's really exciting for me not just because you can produce dairy from it but other um, fats and proteins and other foods as well and um, the thing with cultivated meat is you might be surprised to hear this because maybe you think I'm a massive proponent of it I'm not a massive proponent of it and there are an increasing number of journalists and scientists that are coming out now saying actually it's hard to create the technology to create real meat in a stainless steel vessel. Whereas, you know, the process of cellular fermentation is is way more uh, scalable and realistic if we're thinking about feeding the population. So I'm not claiming, I know the technology that's gonna get us to an animal-free food system in the future. But if you look at the evidence, you look at the people that have got the finger in the pulse and their nose to the ground, whatever the saying is, they are predicting that it's gonna be uh, cellular fermentation that is uh the thing that that grows in and um dominates market share now i'm sure you remember from the china study that um milk protein casein is carcinogenic is that going to be one of the proteins that that the cell fermentation process is going to produce identical so it's like it's, if you've got an allergy it's, it's gonna, you're going to get that reaction of course, you don't have the, the hormones, antibiotics. So there's going to be marginal health benefits popula- across the population. I guess it might be, you know, significant. But yeah, it's, it's still going to be carcinogenic, for sure. Well, then I don't hold out a lot of hope <laughs> for it. <laughs> I mean, you know, a great new technology to give us a new carcinogenic What's more important, though, Glenn, the Um, the health of our planet or the health of individuals? The health of our planet. You got me on that one. But, you know, I I just can't get behind something that, you know, that is not going to be uh, uh, consistent with human health. and the other thing is that, you know, I remember when I was a kid, Klaus, and I'm about 
twice as old as you are. When I was a kid, I was told that uh, within five years, the United States is going to be on the metric (laughs) system. And I'm still waiting for that. And nobody even dreams it's possible anymore. And there's nothing hard about it. In fact, the metric system is a lot easier than inches and feet and all that. So um, when, when pe- you know, and I've heard all about, uh, you know, we're going to have automated driving. We're going to have driverless trucks. And I'm not sure I'm looking forward to that either. Um, I'm just always a little bit skeptical of putting all our hope in technologies, especially when the solution is right in front of us and we don't need those technologies. If those technologies show up, fine, but the idea of depending on them. See, my fear is it gives people a crutch. Well, I'll keep eating meat now, but when you come up with that delicious cell-based meat, I'll, I'll try that. Uh, the other thing I worry about is that the people who are meat eaters, you know, I mean, right now they can have the Beyond Burger or the Impossible Burger. It may not be so healthy, but it, it, it's there right now. And as I, I haven't tried these products, but as I understand it, they taste just like meat. And if they're not going to have that now, are they really going to say, oh, I'll eat meat that came from a uh, stainless steel container? Um, you know, I just, I don't know that it makes sense to hold out a lot of hope for it. Even, and right now, you know, they haven't been able to overcome all the obstacles to producing it, um, uh, at scale, uh, at, at, at a price that's competitive, right? There's no sell meat on the market. Is there class? sold in Singapore, um, in in a yeah, restaurant or something like that, right? 2020 in Singapore. Um, but yeah, yeah, but of course, then you've got the animal agriculture subsidies that they're competing against. So the fact that there are already some animal products that are competing, that are the same price or cheaper than than animal products, despite the, the you know, the subsidies that animal products and the animal agriculture industry receives is, is pretty good. It just shows that taking animals out of the equation is the way to go. Um, and I think that the economic factor is going to be the thing that saves the day because that's the system that we live in. Right. Um, but of course we want the health community and awareness that they're healthy and affordable plant based options that are, you know, good for human health. That community is going to grow as well. I just don't think that's going to reach more than, you know, 50% of the global population, unfortunately. For those who may not know, Klaus has a video that he did um, uh, that's, of course, on his channel called The World Will Go Vegan Without Realizing It. Is that the title? Do I have that right, Klaus? What do you think of that hypothesis? What do you think of that hypothesis? Do you think that will happen? Do you think the world will go vegan without realizing it? Well... I don't, I don't buy into the premise that it will happen because of cell meat. Uh, I need the world to go vegan, uh, soon. You know, uh, our friend Silas Rao says that we need a vegan transformation in the next four years. And, you know, there are almost 8 billion people. And I, for 20 years, I've been writing books 
and creating a vegan here, here and there, you know, I, I hope that I've contributed some vegans to the world, but then there's a carnivore born every minute, you know? So now that Silish put this pressure on me that I have four years to turn the world vegan, what happened is I developed a hernia from the strain. And, um, you know, so now I got to deal with that, which means I have to take time off writing books to turn the world vegan. So it's really tough to do it on, on Silas's time frame, four years to, to turn the world vegan. But, you know, for anyone who knows Silas Rao, he's just a great optimist. He's a great, uh, what can I say, a great spirit that who's who's who has faith in humanity that we'll get this done because we have to get it done. Um, and uh, while I don't buy the premise that that you've articulated, Klaus, that it may happen because of the uh, the alt what you call the alternative protein industry, um, cell meat. You know, I'll be happy if I'm wrong and you're right. Uh, I do object, by the way, to this term alternative protein because it kind of accepts the idea that the meat industry is protein. So since that the meat industry is protein, we're going to give you an alternative protein. I don't accept that the meat industry is protein. You know, it's like when you go to a restaurant and they say, what's your choice of protein, chicken, pork, or, or fish? Um, that's not protein. That's saturated fat, cholesterol, all kinds of poisons and toxins. You know, they pick it, they're picking out one thing that they think they could uh, talk about that's, uh, that sounds uh, more appealing, but it's all unhealthy. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't, I don't like to give the meat industry credence that it is protein. It isn't. Um, but we've now just about exhausted... Uh, all the subjects for the interview that I had in mind. Do you have anything else that you want to say to the vegan world about making this transformation happen? Uh, I think, yeah, I just uh, I think that there's positivity in, in both messages. I think that the more healthy vegans we have, the more uh, sort of tacit uh, activism people will be able to do without even having to do anything because they'd just be that glowing example. Um, and I think there's there's arguments and advantages to what I'm saying, which maybe is a bit more of a realistic, scalable solution, at least in the short term. So I think it's it's fascinating. I don't think that animals care, which which industry prevails, <laughs> and the reality is it'll probably be both. You know, there'll probably be alternative protein, animal free products that process, that proliferate and take off, and then more. Um, whole food plant-based communities and I think it's win-win. All right. Well, on that optimistic message, uh, uh, let me say, Klaus, thank you for thank joining you. us. And uh, Rich, please Absolutely. sign us Absolutely. Great up. job uh, by you, Klaus. And for everybody that is listening or watching the show, remember to check us out at realmeneatplants.com. Click on the support button there. Take the 30-day challenge. Read the blogs. Find our YouTube channel as well, which also has the Glenn Merzer Show on it and all over social media. Gentlemen, excellent job. I love the discussion. I mean, there was a lot of great stuff in there. And remember to check out Plant-Based News. It is absolutely one of my favorites. You could also check out the website. It is plantbasednews.com. 
.org or .org, as we like to say here in the States. So uh, for uh, Klaus and Glenn, I'm Rich, and we will see you next time right here on The Glenn Merzer Show.